things that we have been looking at today. And uh, then Paul here now is going to, today, among other things, is going to teach us what our resurrection will look like, when it will take place, and uh, some of uh, the circumstances around that. We'll get into a little bit today, and then, uh, of course, at, towards the end of the chapter. <clears throat> but uh, by way of review, we saw that there has always been errors concerning the eternal state, uh, whether it be soul sleep or no resurrection or annihilation and so forth. Many st- stem from Gnostic teaching that matter in the body are inherently evil. And so a bodily resurrection cannot be our final state because that would be, in a sense, uh, to keep things as they are now. Because they don't understand that matter is not evil and that sin can be removed from that and will be someday. So Paul corrects these errors and makes it clear that we will be raised not just in spirit but bodily as well. And also to reject this is to reject the Old Testament, to reject Jesus' teaching, to reject the apostles' teaching. Uh, and it means that Christ is still in the grave. And so this is not one of those tertiary or secondary doctrines that we can bicker about, that we can debate. Uh, this is foundational to who we are as Christians and uh, to the very gospel itself. And so we are in the middle of seeing why the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection are fundamental doctrines of Christianity and that you can't have one without the other. Paul has made that statement several times. He'll make it again in our text. And um, so verses 16 through 19 sum up much of what we have been speaking of over the last couple of weeks. And as he sums this up, he uh, gives us three personal consequences. that We've already seen some if there's no resurrection. But we'll see three more starting in verse 17. So in verse 16, he kind of repeats what he's already said. Uh, He argues from the greater to the lesser, or from the lesser to the greater. Actually, this is the second time that he's made this uh, statement here in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, even not even Christ has been raised. So to say that we will not be raised is to say that Christ has not been raised. And uh, he's, he's repeating what he's said earlier. And uh, But then he says there's consequences to all this as, as well that have disastrous results. In verse 17, the first one we see here is that if Christ is still in the grave, then we will not be that we will not be raised again. But not only that, we're still lost in the guilt of sin. Because Christ was raised for our justification. The resurrection is proof that the Father accepted the finished work of Christ on the cross. Had he left Christ in the grave, that would have let us know that Jesus was actually just a man, and that his death has no uh, vicarious effect upon us. But since he is raised, we know we know then that we are not lost in our sins if we are united to the resurrected uh, Christ. Far from benefiting uh, Christianity, far from benefiting a generic faith that merely helps us cope with life, which is what we've seen has been one of the errors of those who don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe in miracles, really don't believe in the word of God, is that Christianity is just a... One faith among others that just helps me cope. But far from that, Paul says it's useless 
to have a faith whose object is not resurrected, but still in the grave. Useless, first of all, he says, because no satisfactory uh, way of atonement has been made. You're still lost in your sins. You still are guilty before the Lord. So you have only his wrath to face. So this, this Christianity is more than just self-help. It's how our sins are dealt with. If you think about it, and just think about what the Bible is, the whole narrative of the Bible, it's all about the redemptive work of Christ in saving sinners. And Christ is, a, you know, Jesus said in the volume of, of the book, is written about me. It's about the fact that man is a sin, a sinner, that he needs to be forgiven of those sins, that guilt needs to be taken away, and, and all the, the things that we've studied in the t- temple and the tabernacle, all the animal sacrifices are all geared to figure out how to have a God who is justly at odds with us and condemns us to have peace with God. And that's what the Bible's about. And, but what happens to sinners who remain unrepentant? And if that's not the subject of Christianity, it's just a self-help guide, then uh, the, the Bible really was written in a way that makes no sense. Uh, the Bible was not written as, as a way to appease our conscious, but to help us figure out how to get our sins removed, you know. So, just just think about it for a minute. To, to, to deny the resurrection is to deny what the whole Bible is getting at. And, and, and so, um, <clears throat> implicit in all this is that understanding that everybody knows that they're sinners and that the sin question has to be taken care of in Christ, who was de- 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 who was crucified, buried and rose again. And so the real question is, if if uh, that's not the case and none of that really matters, well, now what? What's the point? What, what are we doing with ourselves? What, what, what is life about? Because the Bible seems to make it a, a, to be about getting our sins forgiven and having peace with God. And so the whole purpose of the Bible and Christianity, uh, of our faith, is being voided, is being made useless if there's no resurrection. And, and Paul's not so stupid as the liberals, to, the Christian liberals today, who think that coping, just being able to cope with life is all that matters. I mean, who cares if you go into a tailspin depression and kill yourself? Or end up, you know, in the streets of San Francisco, uh, the zombie drug, and just uh, the most miserable of conditions. Who cares if, if that's how your life ends up? Or who cares if you just live to get it, have it all, to get whatever you can, and get rich and have it all right now? You can die like a dog. Who cares? Does it make any, any difference? And, and, and we'll get into this again in, in next week as well. At the end of the day, if there is no God and no eternity, nothing matters. That's what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> There's two other verses that expose this error that, of, of what the Bible, the gospel is all about. Romans 4.24 But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ died for that purpose primarily not to give us an example of how to live, although that certainly is the case. But this is the point. 
Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's the point. <clears throat> Nothing else matters. Or I should say, there's other things that matter in life, but until you get right with God, nothing else matters. Because you're just going to die, and, we'll, and, and you'll have nothing but the wrath of God. If you leave in everything you've lived for. And so, if you think about it, it wasn't until the Sunday of the resurrection, when the dead who were in the graves came forth um, and walked the streets of Jerusalem. And why did I think the Lord allowed that to happen? I think to demonstrate to everybody that this was the whole purpose, so that we might live again. And so he allowed some to live again temporarily to be an example, to illustrate that. <clears throat> but Ephesians explains this more fully, what's going on in chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And so by... Ascending into heaven, he brought, I believe, with him the host of the Old Testament, all the Old Testament saints. Those who were captive by sin and death have been freed from it. And he also, we know, gave us the Holy Spirit. When he ascended on high, he gave the church the Holy Spirit. He gave us gifts. These are the things that were done uh, at the, in the work of Christ, which really expands from his incarnation all the way until his ascension. When our salvation and all that is needed to bring it about was finally finished. <clears throat> and so that's the first thing in verse 17, is that if he's not raised, we're still in our sins. Verse 18, <clears throat> we see the second one. He says, by the way, your loved ones are in heaven. He says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Because if their sins haven't been forgiven, because if Christ is still in his grave, how his, his death was meaningless. That means oh, the ones that you thought have died before you, your friends and family, and you thought were in heaven, nope, they're in hell. So there goes your comfort. So that's not good. <clears throat> Moses, Abraham, David, all of them, they're all, they're all in heaven because the Bible's fairy tales. Because, because instead of thinking that that they lived it all just to bring Christ into the world. No, there, there's no rhyme or reason to anything that we read in the Bible. Then verse 19, thirdly, if our faith is only to help us in this life, then and there's no afterlife, that, what's the, that's what I've been saying all along. We are denying ourselves things for no reason because there's nothing better waiting for us. We are of all people, Paul will say later, uh, to be pitied. <coughs> We've completely missed the purpose of life. Well, in fact, if none of this is true, there is no purpose of life. Which is exactly why you see people living the way they do, because we've taken away the purpose of life when we take Christ out of it. We take the Bible out of it. We don't tell people uh, the, the gospel. Then there's nothing left. The purpose is gone. You know, and so Paul's saying that if this is true, and Christ is still in the grave, and we have no blessed hope, then Christians have given up any chance for peace with the culture around them, getting along with people, 
Uh, they've lost any chance for worldly security, pleasure, power, enjoyment of life, or much enjoyment of life, because they've been denying themselves so that they uh, can have Christ forever. And if Christ is still in the grave, they've been denying themselves all this for no good reason. And so what little joy you can have in your existence, Christians have given it up. And there's nothing else to live for. So we're the most, we're, he says we're fools. We need to be pitied. So we're not just mistaken. That, that's certainly true. Jesus was mistaken. The, the apostles were mistaken about all this. That they got it all wrong. But it's worse than just being mistaken because you have, you're giving up something. You have nothing to live for. And let's face it, even if it gives Christianity in, in its teachings, give um, a solid family life, and even if honesty is the best policy, and it is, in, in a number of ways, a number of reasons, it isn't enough of a reason to be a Christian. So Paul is saying that just having solid marriages, learning to love people, and, and it's one, and all that, I'll talk about it in a minute. It, it's wonderful, but, it, but Paul is saying that none of that is, is reason enough to be a Christian if you die like a dog. And so you gotta think about that. That's why we said before, anyone who thinks that, that Christian, the, the purpose of Christianity is just whatever helps you cope with life, Paul says, nope. That's not enough. There's gotta be more to it than that. <clears throat> now let me say, the flip side of all that, we all know instinctively that godly principles, the, the principles of God's word, do bring about a joy and a satisfaction and a fulfillment in life that living hedonistically does not bring. But to me, that just proves the Bible's true. If, if living the way our creator brings about the best uh, society, the best family life, the best personal experience, well, I, I can't be surprised by that. What would we expect? So, yes, Christianity does make your life better in the sense of you understand what real love is. and You're able to love as you should. You're able to receive love. You're able to have a family relationship uh, as it was meant to be, a marriage as it was meant to be. Yes, that's all true. So, Christianity is is true by the way it transforms our life. But if it's not based in facts of the Bible, the historical facts, even that is of no lasting value. So yeah, you might have faithful uh, marriage, and we see lost people who benefit from doing things God's way. Right? Their, their marriage might benefit, and, and that's certainly true. But it's of no lasting value because you die and then it's a, what has it gained you in eternity. Of course, absolutely nothing if there's no God, if there's crisis in the grave. So in other words, by being faithful to my wife, <clears throat> not being a boozing, gambling, womanizer, uh, will in many ways make my family life better. My conscience won't condemn me year after year. Although the very fact that we have a conscience proves, I think the, the Bible is true, of course. 
But without judgment and reward and eternity with God, it doesn't really matter. There's no purpose to it, right? This is why many cannot withstand temptation because they really don't believe they're going to answer to God. They, they, and, and so you, you take away the, the, the motivation to behave and to do good and to love others and not just to love yourself. As soon as you take away the judgment, you take away the meaning, the, per, the meaning of life, the purpose to behave. Therefore, the value of anything can only be found in its relationship to God and eternity. Not just how it affects you temporally. It's immensely sad to see our culture trying to find meaning to life and to keep people civil when they tell them there is no God to answer to. And it, and it, it would be comical if it wasn't destroying people's lives, right? To tell them, on the one hand, you are an accident. The whole universe is an accident. You are a, a, a human being is mostly is, is ugly bags of mostly water, because that's what you are, physically speaking. And if you're just you're just an accident, that the fact that you're here now, I want you to go out and be productive and to uh, behave yourself. Well, those are two diametrically opposed things. One will not lead to the other. <clears throat> Take away the fear of God and life becomes unworkable because life loses meaning apart from God. So we see people literally grabbing all the gusto now because they have no reason not to. And it just, to me, proves the Bible is true. Got to get it. The Bible explains all this. It doesn't just say that it will happen. It explains to us why people do what they do. Why sinners sin. And so in verse 20, he kind of brings it full circle and goes back to verse 13. He answers verse 13 and he says, But in fact, so all that is what would be true if it wasn't true. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he says, forget all that, it's not true. All those who deny the resurrection, this is why none of that works, so just forget it, because what the Bible teaches, and, and he's going to go back to the Old Testament to remind us when this, how this was taught in some ways. Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here he explains Going back to verse 13, when he says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. So we've disproven that. Now this. And he does it by, by referring to the law of first fruits in Leviticus that kind of foreshadows all these doctrines. We, we, I think we've mentioned this before, but he says, um, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? Well, Leviticus 23.10 it says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, here's one of the laws and the covenant that they wrote with God that you had to keep. You shall bring the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So you plant your crops, and uh, when you brought your very first, reap your very first, uh, you know, whatever it was, 
cursing that ripens, you would take that and you would give it to the Lord. As you can see, that's kind of where the whole idea of tithes and offerings come from, where you take the first fruits. Like you said before, Sandra and I have always, since the day we got married, we write the check out Sunday morning. Before we spend anything, we write that check out. It's the Lord's, not ours. It never was meant to be. You say, well, we're not under the law. Well, we're not under the law, but in the next chapter we're going to see that Paul reminds them to, on the first day of every week, set aside a, a gift for the Lord as he has uh, blessed you. And so, whether, say, what does it have to be 10%? Well, we'll get to that later, uh, you know, when we get there, but uh, it, it's based on how well he's blessed you, but you set it aside. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They had to do it for in all aspects of their life, but including their crops. Of course, they were mo- mostly agricultural, so that would only make sense. And, uh, but that's what they did. So the, 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 the first fruits, this offering of first fruits, marred the beginning of the harvest. Before they actually were reaping that much, uh, they would bring this to remind themselves and to thank God that he's the one who gave it to them to start with. Alright? So you've got that. Now it's interesting, what really makes this really pop, in a sense, is this whole illustration found in the law, this typology, is that the formal reaping didn't take place for 50 days. And that was called Pentecost. Because that would be when the harvest was officially begun. Now, Jesus was crucified on Passover because he was, of course, the fulfillment of the Passover land. He arose on the day of first fruits. And 50 days later, it was Pentecost. What we call Pentecost. No, why is it called Pentecost? Well, because that was under the Jewish economy, that was Pentecost. But now Paul is saying that Jesus was the first fruits of something. And of course, the first fruits means that later on, you're going to have a harvest. And so you see how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament law by becoming the first fruit. He was the first one raised. And so just as you, if you have a sheath of barley, that's your first fruits that you give to the Lord. And that means that 50 days later, what are you going to have? You have a harvest of a barley. All right? So Jesus was raised from the dead in a spiritual body, which means that there's going to be later on another, the actual harvest, the rest of the harvest is going to be at the same time. That's what Paul, the whole point. Uh, you're going to be raised as Jesus was raised with, with these glorified bodies. And Jesus... His resurrection is a promise of things to come. Just as the Old Testament uh, first fruit was a promise of a of a, um, a, a harvest to come. Now think about it. Fifty days later after Christ was raised, what happened? Well, not the general resurrection. That's, that's yet to come when Christ comes back. That's going to be the final resurrection. The, the actual harvest. But Pentecost... When the, when the Spirit was given, and all of a sudden now, people are being brought into the kingdom. So the harvest is beginning at Pentecost, 50 days later, and it's going to culminate, of course, in the uh, final harvest at the day of resurrection, when we're given 
empty body. So, just an amazing way that the Bible all comes together in producing our salvation. And so, we can't isolate Christ's resurrection from ours because the law taught that it was only the the beginning. And Paul has pointed that out. the, The beginning, the first fruits. Now, verses 21 through 22, and to really make sense of, of this passage, especially in the, in the latter part of the message, you've really got to read this in context and let it flow to, to make sense, because it can it has been destroyed, I think, by a lot of people. But anyway, so just let's read through this. Let's start reading verse 21, and I want you just to, Keep Paul's argument in mind, but also just think about what he's saying. So he says in verse 1, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So those who have already died, who are uh, in a temporary state, as it were, they're dead, but something's coming. Then he explains how all this works with Adam and the second Adam. For as by one man came death, and by a man, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And of course, that's Jesus, right? For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So there's the, the general harvest, as it were, the, the final harvest. But here he explains how all this is working through the concept of federal headship. And so, we learn, of course, he's really expanding what he taught in Romans chapter 5, but we know that we all became sinners. He says, all those in Adam, uh, Adam brought death and sin. Because we're all organically connected to Adam, right? We all came from Adam. Every human being came from Adam. We're organically connected to him. So when he fell, Sin was passed on to all of us. Sin and death. And that's what he says there in the first part of verse 22. For as in Adam all die. But now, when he says as, um, is that a simile? As, like, not like and as, right? It, it lets us know that there's a comparison coming. As in Adam all die. All those connected to Adam are in, in the condition of sin and death. So, in Christ, also be made alive. So in some way, in being connected to Christ, you get life, just as being connected to Adam, you get death. But there's been some confusion. Your, your, your doctrine, if, if your doctrine is a little messed up, you read this passage and you're going to come to some wrong conclusions. Jesus had to be human and die to rise again because Adam was a human. And as uh, Mark brought out so well yesterday at the conference, the, the, the thing about Adam's sin was that it was volitional. And an animal can't on purpose sin, right? He can't on purpose obey. He can't on purpose disobey. So an Adam, uh, animal can't be a proper substitute. A human being with a volition was the only substitute. So Christ came and he voluntarily kept the law and obeyed the Father and pleased the Father, and he became a perfect substitute. And so, Jesus died and rose again. That's a mechanism by which we shall be raised 
Um, in, in both cases, there is an organic connection to our heads. Now think about this. Some people read this and they say, well, in Adam all die, so in Christ everyone's going to be saved. Because it says all, right? All's all. Well, the problem is you, you've got some problems here that, that, that doesn't quite make sense. Because there's many other texts that lets us know that the alls in this verse, what they are, but they are not. They cannot be equal. The Bible is clear that all men without exception have become sinners in Adam. Because all, if you're a, a human being, you came from Adam, right? But, you know, we have an organic connection to Adam, but that's not true with Christ. Not everybody is connected to Christ. Right? So the alls can't be the same. You are united to Christ when you are converted. When the Holy Spirit converts you, when he gives you faith, and he convicts you, and you repent and you believe, he unites you to the finished work of Christ, and now you become organically connected to Christ. But in a spiritual way, right? So there, there's the difference. So in Adam, all humankind, all those who were connected to Adam, which is every human, were made sinners. And just like that, everyone who's connected to Christ shall have life. But you gotta get connected to Christ, and not all humans are, you see. So anyone who would take this verse and try to, to teach universalism that everyone's gonna be saved, don't understand how you're connected to Christ. They don't understand the gospel. And uh, so all those in Adam inherit death, and all those in Christ inherit life. And so the second all speaks of those who are saved, who are not only in Adam at birth, but later on are joined to Christ when they're converted. Let me give you one example in the scriptures, so let you know where you see this. Paul says in Romans 16, 7, Greek and Drakinus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, it seems like it is kind of an innocuous statement, but think about it. Paul is saying that in time, we were all chosen to be in Christ in eternity when God chose to save us, to unite us to Christ, Ephesians 1. But he says, in time, that has to get worked out, because they don't all live at the same time. And so, in time, these two were united to Christ. In other words, he's saying, they were saved before I were. They were converted before I were, and I came along later, and I was saved later. But they were in Christ, just like you were, we say we are in Christ. That's why the term and the concept of being united to Christ and being in Christ is so important, because without that, uh, you you have no way to benefit from this work on the cross. So all this requires some familiarity with the Bible. It, it requires careful meditation. Uh, you know, in other words, it's not that hard to understand, but you got to think about it for a while. You got to put two and two together. You got to put the Bible together. And just as sure as all those who came into this life are destined to die because they're guilty sinners. Everyone who's joined to Christ are just as destined, that's kind of what Paul's point is, to be raised and to be given a glorified body, to be made alive, because they're united to Christ. So his work, his resurrection, it becomes our resurrection. 
Now, let's just finish here by looking at, it's in some ways, the even more controversial verses. I don't think they need to be, but unfortunately they are. If we just read through this and follow his train of thought, I don't think it's that difficult. But let's just start reading in verse um, 24. All right, well, let's read verse 23. For each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, or Christ when he was raised, then at his coming, so the next thing we're waiting for is his coming, and that's when we're going to receive our resurrected bodies. Those who are dead will receive theirs, and then we will ours. Let's just read in a second, First Thessalonians 5, or 4. Turn over there for a second. And let's just read, because this is Paul, who's saying the same thing, but a little bit differently, kind of helping us understand what's going on here. In First uh, Thessalonians 4, let's start reading in verse 13. And let's just, again, just think about what he's saying, the order of things. First Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And this was something that people were uninformed about and still are today. But those who are about those who are asleep, about those who have already died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Well, that shouldn't be too difficult to understand. You know, if I bury my mother, who I know is a Christian, I know I will see her. Two things. She's much better off. And I know I'll see her again, right? So I can't possibly grieve like those who have no hope, who don't believe in the resurrection. Right? Then he explains a little bit of this. For, verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so you see, this is, that's the basis of it all, just like in 1 Corinthians. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now this is, he's talking about the coming of the Lord. So those who are dead now, who are with him in spirit, when he comes back, he will bring them with him. That, that's, that's what's going on. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So the Lord has told him this. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have already fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, Archangel, excuse me, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who come with him in spirit, they, because they have been faithful to the Lord and died in him, shall, their bodies shall come up out of the grave and they will receive their glorified bodies first. And then we who are alive, verse 17, who are left, will be caught up together with them. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So that's the blessed hope. And he, but he gives us the order of what's going on. It's not all that difficult to see what, what he's saying there, right? Now, going back to our text, let's just start reading again in, in verse 23 and keeping these things in mind. But each of us in his own order. Well, see, he just got through saying that, right? Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there he combines the orders, Christ first, then all of us. Although we, later he says, technically, those who are already dead first and then us. But it all happens at the same time. 
Alright? So, then comes the end. All who belong to Christ, verse 24, then the next thing at that time, when Christ comes back, that's the, what we're talking about here, then comes the end. Now think about it. He's given us an order. Christ first, then us at his coming. Then, that's it. That's the end. When, at that time, at the end, he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So, what's, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Christ to come back, to receive our resurrected bodies, or if we die, we're waiting, they're waiting for him to go back so that they can get their bodies right. That's the end. Once he does that, he's conquered sin and death. Everyone who he is ordained to save will be saved. Um, we're, we're, we're made eternal. We're given glorified bodies that will never die. Uh, Satan, if you saw in Revelation, Satan and this world will be cast into hell. The, the, the kingdom will be finished and will hand it over to the Father. He's done his redemptive work. That's the whole purpose that he came to earth to do that redemptive work. What we don't read here is that uh, when we're raised, then, he doesn't say, then comes the end, which there will be a thousand, uh, seven years of great tribulation. People will be dying and a lot of bad things will be happening. Then there will be a thousand year reign uh, where uh, we'll have this kingdom. He doesn't say that. Why does he ignore that? Why does he not say that? No, he says, then the, the look, notice what he says. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. That's what he's going to do when he comes back. And so this is why I, I, I do not understand the dispensational uh, view that there's going to be, that the end is really not when Christ comes back. There's still a lot of seven, a thousand, seven years to go. I have a problem with that. And it's interesting to read uh, John MacArthur, who of course I respect greatly, but in the, the one place where I think he really drops the ball is his eschatology. And when you read him trying to reconcile all this with dispensationalism, he actually divides the resurrection into five different resurrections, which right there, it seems to make us run screaming away from dispensationalism. <clears throat> but he says, at the rapture, all the saints who die between Pentecost and the rapture will be raised. Next will be the resurrection of those tribulation saints who died during the tribulation. Um, he mentions that the tribulation will be a time of unimaginable, horrible things going on, as if it could be any worse than what we've seen in human history. Next, he says, the Old Testament saints will be raised along with the previous ones at the end of the tribulation. Then he says, those saints who died during the millennial reign, they'll be raised. But he says, you know what? They might not be raised at the end of the millennial reign. They might be raised when they die. because, Which only makes sense because how could someone be, die as a Christian in the millennial reign and then, and then go to hell, or not go to hell, but remain in the grave when Christ is reigning on earth? So he would have to be immediately raised. But you begin to see how convoluted it becomes. So even he says it, it might be that this poor kind of person that when they are raised, they will, when they die, they'll be raised right then and there when they die. Um, finally, at the end, he says, at the end of that 
thousand year kingdom age, the unsaved will be raised uh, from all ages. So you've got four resurrections of saved people, and then at the end of the millennial reign, a, a, a fifth resurrection of everybody who is not a Christian. If Paul was, was trying to explain to us what the resurrection looked like, there in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, he did a really bad job of explaining what's going on, if that's the case. And what you have to do is have have a system out there that you've got to fit into uh, verses 23 through 25, and, and I think that's what dispensationalism does. So, anyway, that's my view of what all this is talking about. And as I read First Corinthians 4, I think that would support that. It just seems much easier to see all this happening at the end, of the, at the second coming. Coming is the thing that we're waiting for. That's the end. If you read... Second Peter 3, Paul's, uh, Peter says that when Christ comes back, he will melt the heavens and the earth with fervent heat. He doesn't mention a thousand seven years in between. He says he'll do it when he comes back. It just seems that's the easiest way to understand scripture, and I think it makes the most sense. Um, so the last thing he says here, and with this we're done, he says, for he must reign, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So Christ already is reigning. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is plain he is, he is accepted. That is, the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, it's it's what it's saying there is that once all the electors say all the purposes of God and redeeming mankind and judging the lost are finished, he's gathered the church triumphant because that's the kingdom, the the kingdom of of all those that he has saved. Once he's redeemed, done what he was sent to do, redeemed the the church, he will will offer it back to the Father. Uh, He has accomplished what uh, he was sent to do, and God will be uh, unite, reunited in a sense uh, as a Trinity in eternity. They will kind of return back to the way it was. Uh, in a sense, of course, Christ will always have that book, uh, that uh, physical body. But the purpose, in other words, the purpose that Christ came to do will be finished. He's done it, and then we will enjoy Him forever. So that I think is what Paul is kind of getting at there. Anyway, I hope that has uh, shed a little bit of light uh, on some of these things and just to see the glory of the gospel, the glory of what uh, God is doing in his purposes with men. Any questions or comments? Yes. Excuse me. 